Hi friends, this is Justin from Why Catholic. I really appreciate everyone who has donated to keep this podcast going. And so I thought, wouldn't it be great if people could support this podcast, but also get something in return? So I created a Why Catholic merch shop. You can find it on Etsy. Just search for Why Catholic. And I've also linked to it in the show notes. These designs are 100% original. I wanted to make something that shares our faith, but also looks trendy. You can find t-shirts, hats, sweatshirts, and more. And I'm constantly adding to the store as well. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks so much for supporting Why Catholic. Here's a Bible trivia question for you. What was the first major decision that Jesus' disciples made following Jesus' ascension into heaven? The answer is they decided to replace Judas Iscariot, who had committed suicide after betraying Jesus. We see this in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 15. The idea was proposed by Peter. In fact, he told the others that choosing a successor was necessary. In verses 21 through 22, he gave the criteria for the replacement. Quote, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. End quote. The disciples narrowed Judas's replacement to two people, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. After praying, they cast lots, and Matthias was selected. This very first decision that the disciples, aka the apostles, made was the beginning of a process that continues to this very day and is the backbone of the structure of the Catholic Church. We call it the Apostolic Succession. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. If you've been following along, we've been focusing on the sacraments since around episode three, minus some interviews and a few other special episodes. We're on the last of the seven sacraments, the Sacrament of Holy Orders. Just as a recap on the definition of sacraments, the word sacrament has two etymological components, the Latin word sacramentum, which means sacred oath, and the Greek word mysterium, which means mystery. When we participate in a sacrament, we take a sacred oath and in return receive Jesus's grace in the form of a mystery. For example, in baptism, we give ourselves to the Lord and God washes away our original sin. In the Eucharist, we say yes to Jesus and he gives us his real flesh and blood to consume in the form of bread and wine. In confirmation, we commit to following Jesus and the Holy Spirit seals us with his indelible mark. In reconciliation, we repent of our sins and vow to return to God and Jesus forgives us of our sins. In the anointing of the sick, we put our trust in God and God moves us towards eternal life. In marriage, we make a lifelong commitment to our spouse, and God makes two people become one flesh. And so each sacrament offers us the opportunity to make a solemn vow, and in turn, Jesus heaps grace upon us. This brings us to the Sacrament of Holy Orders. As a succinct definition, the Sacrament of Holy Orders is the sacrament through which the mission entrusted by Christ to his apostles continues to be exercised in the church until the end of time. This is a sacrament of apostolic ministry, and it includes three degrees, the episcopate or bishops, presbyterate or priests, and the diaconate or deacons. Before we even begin discussing the various offices of bishop, priest, and deacon, we have to discuss the apostolic succession, because this is the whole premise for why the Catholic Church has these offices to begin with. And if you haven't listened to episode 38 on the Jewish roots of holy orders, you may want to start there. 
As a Protestant, the concept and the importance of the apostolic succession was completely foreign to me. When someone wanted to become a pastor, all they needed to do was to start a church. But that's not how it works in Catholicism, because that's not how it worked in the Bible. One didn't assume ecclesiastical authority. It was bestowed on them. We see this not only in the Old Testament with the priests, but we see this beginning with Jesus in the New Testament, giving his authority to his disciples. Matthew 28, 16 through 20 states, quote, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. End quote. John 20, 19 through 23 says, quote, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me even so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained, end quote. Notice a couple of things. First, these two passages occur after Jesus' death and resurrection. We do see Jesus commission his disciples earlier in his ministry. Luke 10, for example, tells us of Jesus sending out 70 of his followers two by two, telling them to heal the sick. When they returned, they reported that, quote, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, end quote. Secondly, note that the authority that Jesus gives in Matthew 28 and John 20 are specifically to his inner circle of 11 disciples. Remember that Judas was dead at this time. Third, note a couple of details in the John 20 passage. Jesus breathes on them and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit, and he gives these disciples an additional authority of forgiving and withholding forgiveness of sins. Throughout the book of Acts, we not only see the apostles exercise their authority, but we see the church recognize their authority. For example, Peter states that they should replace Judas in Acts 1. In Acts 3, Peter and John were at the temple and Peter healed a man who was crippled. In Acts 5, Peter pronounces judgment on Ananias and Sapphira for lying and the two were struck dead. In Acts 6, the 12 apostles decide that they should appoint seven deacons to help with the more routine details of ministry. In Acts 10, Peter does a very unkosher thing and goes into the home of a Gentile named Cornelius and he leads him to Christ. In Acts 11, we read that a lot of the believers were upset with Peter for visiting with a Gentile, but when he explained the whole ordeal, they were satisfied and submitted to the idea that even Gentiles could be saved. In Acts 15, we read about the first council of Jerusalem, which met to discuss whether one needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. The apostles and elders discussed it for a long time, then Peter stood up and gave his opinion and ultimately it appears James made the final judgment, and when they disseminated their decision in the form of a letter, Acts 15.31 tells us, quote, the people read it and were glad, end quote. Even in the church's infancy, we see that the growing church understood and submitted to the authority of these 12 apostles. But what happened when these 12 apostles died? 
In Clement's letter to the Corinthians around 80 AD, he states, quote, Through countryside and city, the apostles preached and they appointed their earliest converts, testing them by the Spirit to be the bishops and deacons of future believers. Nor was this a novelty for bishops and deacons had been written about a long time earlier, end quote. He continues a couple of chapters later, stating, quote, Our apostles knew through the Lord Jesus Christ that there would be strife for the office of bishop. For this reason, therefore, having received perfect foreknowledge, they appointed those who have already been mentioned and afterwards added to further provision that if they should die, other approved men should succeed to their ministry, end quote. In Irenaeus' work against heresies around 180 AD, he clearly spells out the apostolic succession, particularly in Book 3, Chapter 3. Quote, Since, however, it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon up the successions of all the churches, we do put to confusion all those who, in whatever manner, whatever by an evil, self-pleasing, by vainglory, or by blindness and perverse opinion, assemble in unauthorized meetings. We do this, I say, by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great, the very ancient, and universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, as also by pointing out the faith preached to men, which comes down to our time by means of the successions of the bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority. The blessed apostles then, having founded and built up the church, committed into the hands of Linus the office of the episcopate. Of this Linus, Paul makes mention in the epistles to Timothy. To him succeeded Anacletus, and after him, in the third place from the apostles, Clement was allotted the bishopric. This man, as he had seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them, might be said to have the preaching of the apostles still echoing in his ears and their traditions before his eyes. Nor was he alone in this, for there were many still remaining who had received instructions from the apostles." In Tertullian's work, Demerer Against the Heretics, written around 200 AD, he states, quote, The apostles founded churches in every city, from which all the other churches, one after another, derive the tradition of the faith and the seeds of doctrine, and are every day deriving them, that they may become churches. Indeed, it is on this account only that they will be able to deem themselves apostolic as being the offspring of apostolic churches. Every sort of thing must necessarily revert to this original for its classification. Therefore, the churches, although they are so many and so great, comprise but the one primitive church founded by the apostles from which they all spring. In this way, all are primitive and all are apostolic, while they are all proved to be one in unity, end quote. Skipping a little further ahead, he continues, quote, Then let all the heresies, when challenged to these two tests by our apostolic church, offer their proof of how they deem themselves to be apostolic. But in truth, they neither are so, nor are they able to prove themselves to be what they are not. Nor are they admitted to peaceful relations and communion by such churches as are in any way connected with apostles, inasmuch as they are in no sense themselves apostolic because of their diversity as the mysteries of the faith. End quote. 
A couple times in this podcast, I've mentioned Eusebius's work, Church History. Eusebius was the bishop of Caesarea in the 4th century. Three things stood out to me in reading Eusebius's account. First, the persecution against the Christians in the first 300 years was absolutely horrific. Secondly, it seemed like everywhere there was heresy after heresy popping up. Thirdly, there were a lot of people self-proclaiming that they were a bishop of a given region. How did the church distinguish orthodoxy from heresy? How did they determine who was and wasn't the rightful bishop of a region? Note what Tertullian said, quote, let them offer proof of how they deem themselves apostolic, end quote. In other words, how is a particular group or a particular idea connected to the apostles? Anyone could claim that they were a leader or that their ideas were the truth. And so the church would simply ask, how did you become a leader? Were you self-appointed? Or did someone from the apostolic line appoint you? Was your idea a mere invention or was it passed down from the tradition of the apostles? That was the litmus test. As a Protestant, I didn't think anything of the importance of the apostolic succession until I was talking to a Mormon. The Mormon claimed all sorts of new ideas based on the teachings of Joseph Smith. And my question was simply, by what authority did Joseph Smith claim that the entire post-biblical record of church history was apostate? And by what authority did he claim these new truths? Of course, a Mormon would say that he was given special revelation from God. But what person out there hasn't made that claim? Every heresy begins with, God told me. In asking the Mormon that question, I had to ask myself about the people that I followed in my various Protestant circles. By what authority did Martin Luther claim that scripture alone is the only infallible source? Or by what authority did Huldrych Zwingli claim that the Eucharist is merely symbolic? These are fairly recent inventions by individuals who appointed themselves as authoritative, but veered widely from the apostolic heritage of Christianity. The Bible does not support the idea that someone can simply pop up and be a self-appointed church leader. That authority is handed down first from Jesus to his 11 disciples, then to the bishops that they appointed, starting with Matthias, and on and on and on. Every Catholic bishop, priest, and deacon has authority because a bishop bestowed that authority on them. That authority to become a bishop and to appoint priests and deacons was bestowed on them from another bishop, usually the bishop of Rome, aka the pope. And from there, we can trace the line all the way back to Clement, then Cletus, then Linus, then Peter, then Jesus. It is an unbroken apostolic line of succession. Lumen Gentrium is the constitution of the Catholic Church written during the Second Vatican Council. It states, quote, From the tradition in the practice of both the Church of the East and of the West, it is clear that by means of the imposition of hands and the words of consecration that the grace of the Holy Spirit is so conferred and the sacred character so impressed that bishops sustain the roles of Christ himself as teacher, shepherd, and high priest, and that they act in this person. It is the bishops themselves who admit newly elected members into the Episcopal body by means of the sacrament of orders, end quote. 
You might have questions like, why is holy orders considered a sacrament? Or why are only bishops, priests, and deacons part of the sacrament of orders, and not nuns or other people in ministry? The reason is found in that quote from Lumen Gentrium. The imposition of the bishop's hands and his words of consecration bestow a special grace because it is the bishop that gives them. Nuns and other ministry leaders take vows, but they're not necessarily ordained by the bishop. It is the bishop that has been ordained by a bishop in the the apostolic succession that began with Jesus and his 11 disciples. The Nicene Creed, which many Christian denominations affirm, says this line, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, a lot of Protestant churches emphasize the word Catholic and clarify that what they mean when they say Catholic doesn't mean specifically the Catholic church, but rather it means the generic universal church. They recognize that they are part of the mystical body of Christ, which surpasses denominational barriers. But in focusing on the word Catholic, they overlook the very clear and purposeful adjective apostolic. To be apostolic, as it has been understood throughout the history of Christendom, is to not only adhere to the traditions and the teachings of the apostles, but to be appointed in an unbroken line of apostolic succession. Anyone can say they're the true church. Anyone can claim that God told them something. Anyone can say their interpretation of scripture is the correct interpretation. And there's some 30,000 Protestant denominations as proof of this. This is why from the very beginning of Christianity, the litmus test was not about how many people believe the same thing or someone's private revelation or someone's interpretation of scripture. It was placed on apostolic succession and the authority and teaching passed down from the apostles. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.